Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn, in the above entitled action, upon our oaths, do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good the evening. Wrong this is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Welcome to episode 28, State of California versus Nanette Ann Packard and Eric Andrew Naposky. We're, we're joined by New York Times bestselling author Caitlin Rother, who attended the trials and covered the murder of Bill McLaughlin in her book, I'll Take Care of You. She's the author of 14 books, including Dead Reckoning, an account of the murders of Tom and Jackie Hawks. Ms. Rother grew up in San Diego and is a graduate of Northwestern University, and she was an investigative reporter at the San Diego Union-Tribune. She's also a writing, research, promotions coach, consultant, TV crime analyst, and singer-pianist. Ms. Rother is working, currently working on her next book, Death on Ocean Boulevard, a look at the twists and turns surrounding the death of Rebecca Zahau. We'll talk about the investigation of Bill McLaughlin's murder, the trial, direct appeals, and post-conviction process following the 2011 and 2012 convictions of Deposky and, Pack- and Packard for first-degree murder with special circumstance of financial gain. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347 347- and good evening to Michael and our guest, Ms. Rother. Good evening. Hello. So, all right. Um, So, um, Caitlin, may I call you Caitlin? Go ahead, call me Caitlin. We're from the South, South, Ms. Rother. You're going to have to they call me Miss Caitlin sometimes if they're, you know, talking to five-year-olds. Say hi yeah. to Miss Caitlin. <laughs> now, you and I are contemporaries, so I won't okay. do that to you. Um, <laughs> but Michael might because he's younger. He's younger. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm so, the millennial in the group. All right. Now, I, another thing I saw when I was, you know, 
putting together my uh, my intro was you've all actually been nominated for a Pulitzer. That was for a that was for an article for the newspapers. Okay. About right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was fun. So. <laughs> all right. And I and I'm actually a graduate of UC Berkeley. I have a master's oh. degree from Northwestern. Yeah. Okay. Um, I apologize for missing that no one problem. in my I in my it research. Sent it to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I will. I will make sure to get a uh, a better biography next time. <laughs> no, you did so. Now you covered uh, the McLaughlin murder, and you know, just to kind of introduce our listeners, it was mm-hmm. a fourteen-year case. Right. It was prior to criminal charges. It, well, there were actually two. Well, there were two two phases of this whole thing. So initially, Nanette, um, I'm sure you'll get more into this later in your program. But they they started out thinking that, you know, we want to arrest um, Nanette and Eric Neposki for murder. But the problem was there was a whole uh, backstory of controversy within the um, DA and the police department. They couldn't agree. So the, and this is something that I um, have in the book that nobody knew about really. It didn't come out at trial because it's not something they would talk about. It's one of those more political things behind the scenes that happens in cases sometimes where, you know, they had a, an all-male detective team from the Newport Beach Police Department, and here was this new prosecutor who was a woman, and they didn't, according to her, they didn't really seem to respect her opinion that much. And so they, she said don't split the case up because there was a whole financial aspect, which is why the special circumstance charges allegations were added to the murder later on. But initially... You know, this case was very much proven based on the financial shenanigans that the, that Nanette Packard was doing, and that's how they kind of figured out that she was the one who was responsible, but they separated the two cases. So they have a financial case against her, and then they ended up um, actually convicting her, and she went to jail for, for some financial stuff. And it's very complicated, so I'm not going to go into detail. It's very detailed in the book, but it's kind of complicated to try to explain, but she basically embezzled money. She wrote checks, forged uh, Bill McLaughlin's mm-hmm. signature, and she was basically just funneling money and spending it and pretending that she was rich and having these affairs with these men she met at the gym and pretending essentially that she was kind of Bill McLaughlin. She would tell people that she had mm-hmm. done things that he had done. And so she, she, anyway, she went to jail for the financial stuff, but then there was 14 years before um, this cold case was reopened, and, and then they managed to bring the murder charges with the financial gain um, special allegation. So, that, but it, there was that long period, and then the the prosecutor, that woman, kept thinking, you know, this is a good case, and the detective still thought it was a good case. So finally, all those years later, she handed it off to another prosecutor who was a man, <laughs> and. They had different detectives, and so and they brought in a, a cold case investigator who's awesome, Larry mm-hmm. Montgomery, and um, he managed to put the case together in a way that they were able to prosecute it. Right, that's one of the things I envy you is you get to, you've gotten to meet with Dave Byington, oh, uh, so Matt awesome. Murphy, and Larry <laughs> Montgomery. 
in person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they are, I, they're three people I would love to meet in person. Well, they're all, you know, they're all really good at their jobs. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, Matt had left the DA's office and Dave Byington retired some years ago. And I'm not sure about Larry, what Larry's up to, if he's still working at the DA's office as an investigator or not, to be honest. I don't know. But they were a good team. Yeah, they were. They were. And as you said, I mean, they, but they, they, the, it was a highly circumstantial case to begin with well, from day one. I, I don't, I don't know if I would agree with the circumstantial because, um, there was physical evidence. It's just that, um, you know, the the bullet casings were there. They didn't mm-hmm. find, um, but, the you know, the checks were, um, I would call that physical evidence. You know, they did prove that, you know, she forged those things and stole money, and one of the checks was Correct. for $250,000. And Correct. they were able to put a pretty good case together. But like I said, they separated the two. So they 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 brought, you know, uh, Nanette in for questioning and, and the detectives figured, oh, she'll just, I don't know, they thought she was just going to confess to the murder, but she wouldn't. She didn't talk to them about it. And so they lost that part of the case mm-hmm. early on. You know, they sort of lost right. track of it. And so they just thought, well, we'll just prove what we can prove. Um, but, you know, yeah, they had to do a lot of work and there were phone records. There were, you know, not it was too early to have cell phone tower tracking, you know, triangulation and that kind of thing that they do nowadays. You know, they had to get records. They tried to find records from a pay phone to prove or disprove what Eric Naposky was saying and they had been lost. And, I mean, basically the way that Larry Montgomery was able to do this was to go back through the entire case file and look for witnesses that maybe had been overlooked. And so that's Mm -hmm. how they found Suzanne Kogar, for example, who had been told things by Eric Naposky, which were kind of close to a confession, honestly. So they did have evidence. It's just that they didn't, they weren't able to put it together initially. So by the time Larry got on it and he pulled it together, you know, he did right. it right and in a way that they could use to convict. So. And I, I think I recall reading Suzanne Kogar was actually hesitant yeah. To have her scared. name involved because Eric Naposky is a violent, yeah. imposing, and he was a neighbor of hers at the time. Right. I, I think, you know, he's a big guy. He was, a, he was on various NFL football teams. He, he played five games on the field, um, and he just kept getting injured. So he was, I think, with three different teams, and he kept getting injured during uh, training. So he mm-hmm. did ultimately play five games, and that's what he wanted. That's what he was trying to do. So he was a big guy, and he worked out. He was a good, great athlete. He ultimately went to play in Barcelona on their football team. Um, but again, he just kept getting injured, and so you know, Nanette met him at the gym. So he was a you know real big muscular guy. And mm-hmm. if you know if you're if you're Suzanne Kogar, and this guy starts telling you how he you know blew up a plane, and you know started giving you details, I think you'd be scared because it's sort of an un, unsaid threat almost. Like if, <laughs> if, if some guy tells you, you know, I killed this guy, 
you're mm-hmm. t- you know you're going to think twice about whether you're going to report him, but she did ultimately do it. So right, and she tried anonymously, but unfortunately, that the information she had was something she couldn't be anonymous. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember no. that. To and be then honest, the details on that, but yeah, yeah. And I, then I the do same know with she was scared. Yeah, and they had to yeah. get her to go on the record. And but there no. was actually um, 15 years, I think. So the murder was in '94. Um. So I'm not. I can't remember all the dates, but that's what I have in my notes here. And it was 15 years before the, yeah, the arrests were in 2009. That, yeah. The arrests were in and Larry Montgomery started in seven. Okay, that's probably what you're yeah. thinking of then. Yeah. Right. Okay. It was. It was yeah. a. Uh, and then it took them another two years, three years after that, to get them to trial at all. Yeah. Well, there were two trials. So, mm-hmm. and the thing is, you know, when they do, um, you know, uh, two people like this who were romantically involved, then the two of them, they tr- they like to try them separately because that way they can use different arguments and, and, you know, the prosecution can make different arguments at the different trials. They also did that with uh, the Schuyler DeLeon and Jennifer DeLeon trials with the murder mm-hmm. of Tom and Jackie Hawks. And that was the same team of Matt and Dave Byington and Larry Montgomery. The same team prosecuted that case too, which is another one of the books um, that I've written, Dead Reckoning, which we were just talking about doing another podcast on soon here in the future, but um, yes. and the same allegations. It was also a, 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 de- a murder with special, with financial gain. So the, the thing about the financial gain cases, I like those personally because I don't like gory, gruesome murder books. I don't want to write about that. I don't want to read that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to write a book I don't want to read. So I like mm-hmm. the financial gain cases because they're cleaner in a way you know they're they're more psychological and they're you know there's more um it just it's more interesting to me to see how the detectives put the case together because it's on right you know in a way so that's why i was saying circumstantial it's more like you have to connect dots essentially there's Mm -hmm. there's actually physical paperwork which counts as physical evidence to me it's not blood it's not dna but, you know, for example, the key that was left on the front door, two keys that were left on the front doormat, that would constitute physical evidence, but they had to prove where they came from. Correct. <laughs> they left them there because there were, you know, no fingerprints on them. So, anyway. Correct. It's a really that was more case. what I was, okay, I was referring to, about. that it was nothing that, that tied Eric Naposky, you know, no fingerprints, no footprints, right, no right, DNA. Right. Right. That said, Eric Naposky is your shooter. Of course, in a shooting case, that's going to be very rare. Well, anyway. and you know what's, fun- what's funny to me is that he went through his entire trial and after the- and was convicted. And then after the trial says, oh, there was really, it was a hitman that did it, not me. I'm like, well, where was your hitman theory during your trial? So he convinced his whole family even after mm-hmm. he was convicted, that he was innocent because it really wasn't him. Right. And so when I went to go to his family members to try to get their cooperation, they were scared there was a hitman out there, that they could be killed <laughs> by the same person who killed Nanette. I mean, it was Correct. crazy. And he's still telling that. Who killed Bill? 
Yeah. <laughs> yes, who killed he's, he's He wants to be a con man, but he's not as good as Nanette. Exactly. But I did talk to him for seven hours, and he is a crazy narcissist. When I say crazy, I don't mean, like, mentally ill. I mean, he's mm-hmm. a narcissist, like, beyond. They both are. He and Nanette are both crazy narcissists, and I mean that in, in a as an adjective, not as a mentally ill person. <laughs> But uh, I met with him twice in the jail, and he just would not stop talking about himself. And I'm like, hey, i got to ask some questions here. (laughs) Because Uh I said, you're going to need to let me ask you some questions. I'm not going to just sit here and have you spoon feed me all this crap. (laughs) And (laughs) that was his downfall with the detectives, was that he talked too much, and he doesn't remember what lie he told. So then he contradicts himself, and it's like giving yeah, well, he, giving it to him on a silver platter. Yeah, he had several mentions of these guns, and honestly, I had to go back and review that for another podcast, and I couldn't even I couldn't even get it straight to to recount it. But he, there were a number of guns because he was uh, working security on the side. Mm-hmm. So he was working as a bouncer, he was working security, and so, you know, he had guns, but he, there were a number of guns, and he kept claiming, oh, the gun that would match the one that Bill had, you know, that one was stolen, or I gave it to a friend, or I mean, I can't even remember, there were so many lies. And so they mm-hmm. had to track that witness down, too, like the guy who supposedly either borrowed the gun or said that uh, the gun was stolen while he had it, et cetera, you know, and that was one of the witnesses that Larry nailed down. Right. Later, which helped make the case. So, so like I said, with the passage of time, I think it, it, in some ways it almost makes it easier to prove these things because, you know, there have been falling out, time has passed, people feel guilty or whatever. They don't feel so scared or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, you know, memories fade, certain things disappear, you know. So it it, it was... Not it was tricky for me, but the the person who really a couple people who really helped me out um, to get to know um, Nanette, I I interviewed her third husband who was a really nice guy, and you know she had he had no idea who she was, he had no idea. So when she got arrested, he they had had a baby, and mm-hmm. together and. Um, and it was interesting because I was working on the other book, the Dead Reckoning book, and Dave Byington said, hey, I'm preparing a, an arrest warrant right now um, for this other case. <laughs> I said, oh, really? Tell me. Mm-hmm. And so he started telling me about this book. I'm like, oh, I want to do that one too. <laughs> so he was just about to go and arrest her. And um, she apparently had a stripper pole in her bedroom Mm-hmm. And the husband, you know, which she supposedly was using for exercise, who knows? But um, she was doing Bible study classes in her living room with the ladies, you know, that she knew, uh-huh. and and uh-huh. really liked expensive dresses. It would make her husband take her out all the time, and she had all of these dresses that she either one worn once or had never worn. So she mm-hmm. basically my my description of her my my perception of her was that she was a woman who did not want to be who she really was. So she'd had, 
you know, cosmetic surgery, and she told her husband, her third husband, that they were, her breasts were real. So she was, like, really a bizarre, like, a really bizarre person that I've really encountered. I've never really written about someone like her. She was uh, part Indian, you know, from Mm -hmm. Asia Indian, you know, and her father came over on the, on one of the boats, and he was actually in the courtroom. And the one of the weirdest things was that while the trial was going on, I have this um, tradition that I've kind of gotten into over the years because I live in San Diego, and these trials were at least, you know, 90 minutes away. So I would have to get up really early in the morning and drive up to the courthouse, and then I would sit through the trial. But the traffic was so bad, I would go to California Pizza Kitchen. And I would mm-hmm. have dinner and kind of, you know, think about the day, go over my notes or not, and then drive home because it was a long drive. And I, it was going to be, you know, a lot longer if I didn't wait for the traffic to stop. And so I went to California Pizza, Pizza Kitchen one night, and there was her entire family. And she's got, like, this extended family. Like, her, she wasn't even talking to some of them. And the, she's got a couple mm-hmm. of three siblings. And there was a, you know they didn't all get along and they didn't all tell each other the truth. And it was a pretty interesting family. And then there was um, her, she had two earlier husbands. So she had three husbands and she had kids from every marriage. And so that was kind of her MO. She would try to get with a guy and then some get married and have a kid with them so that she could continue to collect money from them. Right. And she did that with her second husband, too. And so they were all there. They were all there in California Pizza and Kitchen having pizza while she was – it was crazy. And I don't think they saw me. I was just going, oh, man, should I leave or should I just sit here and watch them right. interact? It was just surreal. <laughs> and didn't she also have I, – I seem to recall uh, she had kind of a pattern – she went the relationship when she decided to end it with the guy, then he would become abusive and almost like she was trying to get somebody to take them out for her or so that she could get an advantage. She, she, yeah, she was just a liar. She, yeah, she would use people. So like Tom Reynolds was another one that I interviewed and he, I, I, and the way I got him to, to um, talk to me was I, I had these interviews from the police where he gave them, a, you know, his whole story. And I said, look, I think you're going to come out looking like a, you know, victim in this. And, you know, maybe a little embarrassing to tell the story, but I think it would really help show who she was. Because mm-hmm. she met him um, in between marriages, you know, and she had just been evicted that day. And he was a bouncer at, you know, some bar in, in Orange County. And she just like sidled mm-hmm. up to him and chatted with him. And then like, next thing you know, going home with him, because she has no place to go. He doesn't know that. But she's an attractive woman. And she just moves in. And, you know, a few months later, he's $91,000 in debt. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. like, she just like rolled through his life and tore it up and used him and and, and it was, I, I, you know, I, and lied about it, reported him to the police, said that she, he was abusive to her like he should, and, and it was crazy. So he really helped uh-huh. give me a whole picture of, of her, too. So And didn't her... She is a piece her, of work, man. That woman is a piece of work. <laughs> her last husband, who was with her when she was arrested and convicted, didn't she steal from their friends and... 
so he was facing lawsuits from those people? I don't remember that. Okay. I, I'm not saying I, wrong. I just don't remember that. Um, I thought I read it in an article. I was watching American Greed trying to figure out what it is about her. Is it a magic hoo-ha? I mean, well, what that, is it about her? That's what I was wondering, too. I'm like, what does she have gold down there? I mean, what is the deal? She basically, or mate, you know. I got pictures there are a lot of, of things. She, <laughs> I got pictures of her when she was younger, and she didn't look anything like she did. So she did mm-hmm. a whole makeover of herself. So she was flat chested. She had very frizzy, curly, dark hair. She looked really ethnic. You know, she wasn't unattractive, mm-hmm. but she looked athletic. And she, um, you know, she didn't look like a, a hot mama. You know, she just looked. She was, like, working at a gym, and, you know, that's where she met her first husband. And so they got married. Mm-hmm. Next thing you know, she, she just wants to move up in life. And I got right. um, I got a resume from one of the detectives, and, I, and it was an old resume. And she made, like, all this stuff up. She just made up all this stuff and put it on the resume. But on the resume, which is, was something that was, I think was true, was an acting school. <laughs> so... She basically, mm-hmm. she was a smart, she was street smart, but she lied about going to college. She never went to college. She might have been on campus scouting around to find, you know, she's a predator. You know, she was like a female predator. She was looking for guys who could, number one, I think make her happy in the bedroom. Number two, that she could get to buy her things and take her out. And number three, she wanted to impress people. She wanted to, like, take money from one person, spend them on another person, and make herself look better than she really was. And in the process, Mm -hmm. she started getting herself cosmetic surgery, and she started getting people to buy her dresses, and she got people to buy her cars, and she got people to buy new houses, and she started learning business. And so a lot of what she got from Bill McLaughlin was, and the reason he really appreciated her is because his wife, who he had recently divorced, really didn't care about his business deals that he was working on he mm-hmm. he was a multimillionaire and he had made his money by um inventing this de- medical device um and he it separated the the plasma from the blood and it's yeah. i'm sure it's still being used today and you know made him a lot of money well he also had a really long legal battle with his one of his partners and so there was like $9 million in a holding fund, and she was just like salivating, waiting for that money. And he was like, yeah, it's coming. So she had this whole thing, you know, she, he, she got him to trust her. She moved in, you know, and got, said, oh, I want to have a baby with you. I want to get married. And he had just gotten out of marriage, and he was like, well, uh, didn't really want to. But he bought her a ring, I think, to kind of hold mm-hmm. her off. And so she would take it off when she went to the gym, and she – would pretend that she was single. So she was like dating, having sex with guys at the gym that she was taking out with Bill's money while he was out of town because he had a plane and he would fly to Las Vegas and he was trying to establish residency there to save himself uh, income tax. So he learned, she learned a lot from him as a business person, but then she started taking his money little by little. And And it's, it's unclear whether he found out about it right before this happened because he was telling his brother, I think it was, that, you know, he sounded, they talked right before this happened, and he sounded like something was going on that he'd found out about, and mm-hmm. that may right. have been why she chose to do it at that time. 
If the walls were starting and to close in, I'm not sure. But. I, I think that's one of the saddest parts. He thought he had found a woman who was really interested, but she was only interested in the sense that she wanted to take it from him. Well, okay, and so let's that talk was about her only interest. Met. Yeah, let's talk about how they met because when I when I write these books, no victim is all is all a good guy and no villain oh, no. is all a bad person. But so here's what happened: he answered her personal ad, which said, "I'll take care of you if you take care of me for wealthy men only." So he answered the ad knowing that she was a gold digger, essentially, mm-hmm. he walked into that. And then, you know, they found, um, you know, racy lingerie and red high heels and, you know, I don't know. She had these big pictures of herself naked. And so, I mean, it was clearly a very exciting relationship right. for him as an older, richer man. Exactly. Um, with this young, hot sex pot, who, but who told him from the outset that she wanted his money. So, you know, you kind of have to go into these things with your eyes open. I think I, I kind of pick these stories because I, I think they're cautionary tales in some way as well, that you need to, you need to really look at people because people are not always who they seem to be or who they say they are. Right. Exactly. And she's, she's, I mean, she was fascinating to me. I mean, cause I, I write these books, and it's hard to find um, – this sounds weird, but publishers have certain criteria that they want because a lot of the people who read these books and a lot of the people who watch these shows on TV, these true crime shows, are women, okay? So they like to if, – if you can find a female killer, you're, you're golden because they're not mm-hmm. that common. You know, you, oftentimes, most of the time, the, the, the people who kill other people are men. So when you find right. someone like Finette, see, she didn't actually kill him. She got somebody else to do it. And that's the thing about right. women is they are not usually the ones holding the gun. They'll get someone else to pull the, to, mm-hmm. to pull the trigger. They'll, you know, hire now, somebody or they'll po- poison somebody. But they'll, you know, they're not violent, p- aggressive people because, you know, we're smaller than them. We're not as strong as men. So. Mm-hmm. Have you considered Betty Broderick? You know, when I was at the San Diego Union Tribune, I was fascinated by that case, and that was before I had published any book. And I actually did, I think it was a 10-year anniversary story on that case because I, mm-hmm. I had watched, um, remember that Lifetime movie, I think it was, with um, Elizabeth Baxter Meredith. Bernie, right? Yeah, Meredith. And then there yeah. were a couple – yeah, there were a couple books on the case, and I read those. And so that's kind of how I got started. I got, you know, I've always been a true crime fan. And so that was one of the cases since it was local down here. I worked at the newspaper in San Diego. Um, yeah, I interviewed everyone I could for that story and thought it was fascinating. And she's an interesting case, too. But that, that was mm-hmm. already done, you know, so much that it was already done, done, done by the time I got into this. They want new cases. You know, they don't want old cases. Right. I I but was yes. just disappointed with the prior books because they were too pro-Betty. I don't find that she <laughs> had any – I mean, if my ex-husband yeah. had paid me $9,000 a month, uh-huh. he could have had the whole Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders living with him, and I would not have given a damn. <laughs> 
know, well, she didn't love I, him. She didn't want him. No, I think she, she did. I think she loved him very much, and I think that she, that he was mean to her. And and she also had a lot of um, histrionic and narcissistic personality disorders. I think she was very uh-huh. on. She she had some serious personality issues. <laughs> I'm not saying she was completely sympathetic, but she was fascinating because <laughs> there were two sides to that story too. I don't know. Yeah. I guess it depends on where you come from. I don't take sides in these cases. I always try to look at people. I, I try to look at these cases just from a psychological standpoint in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, why did they do it? You know, who were they? What made them the way they are in order to do this to somebody else? And, and then how did they do it? And how did the investigators figure it out? How did the prosecutors prove it? And then I want to go into all the human detail that never gets into court about who these people are and and who they are to each other and, and all the other stuff that, you know, it doesn't help them in court, but it's still really interesting part of the story. Right. And that is what makes your books. I mean, as I told you, I think before we went on the air, I've read I'll Take Care of You at least twice. That's awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. I downloaded on my Kindle, even though I had it in hard copy. Uh, paperback and then oh, wow. Dead Reckoning I've read twice. Oh, cool. um, I've got well, several in Reckoning? my wish list on Amazon. <laughs> What's that? I've got That's several right. on my wish list on Amazon. Okay, and, and then uh, you, I'm, you're you're ready for the new one. I'm looking forward to Death on Ocean Boulevard, and that <laughs> is coming out April twenty seventh. I just now, half an hour before you and I started talking, twenty minutes finished reading my page proofs, my galleys for that book. And I'm really, really, really excited about this book. I think it's it's just got, it's just the Rebecca Zahau case. So she was the one mm-hmm. who was found hanging naked, bound, and gagged um, outside the balcony at her very wealthy boyfriend's mansion in Coronado Correct. here, California, which is right kind of, and, not down the street, but, you know, about, 10 miles from my house. <laughs> it, so. it is. I, you know, I remember it. It's a crazy case because the son was killed in an accident a few days before. Oh, yeah. yeah. The boyfriend, Jonah Shackney is, was her boyfriend. Um, his son, Max was only six years old and um, Rebecca was taking care of him. And she says, well, I was in the bathroom and I heard this loud crash and I came out and I saw him lying on the floor in the foyer, which is kind of a big area up by the front door, um, at the bottom of this staircase that went up the next, to the next floor, with a chandelier in pieces next to him. The dog was mm-hmm. barking, and there was a soccer ball, and then there was a razor scooter lying on his shin. So mm-hmm. they were never – she didn't see it, or she says she didn't see it. They were never able to prove definitively, but the sheriff's department de- decided determined it to be an accident. And then two days later, she was found hanging. And so the sheriff's department, after a couple months um, investigation, determined that it was a suicide, that she felt guilty for what happened to Max during the time he was in her care. And, right. Um, but, but the rest of the world... <laughs> Many, many, many people think she was murdered, including her family. Her family says there's no way she would have done it. Her ex-husband said there was no way she would have done it. Mm -hmm. Jonah at the time said there was no way she would have done it. However, Jonah's 
brother who came out to support Jonah and be there at the hospital with him because his son was in the ICU with this, you know, this horrible head injury, which ultimately ended his life a few days after Rebecca died. Max was declared brain dead. Um, Adam Shackney was there. And in 2018, a jury found him responsible for Rebecca's death, saying that he killed her. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty wild case. There's a, been a great debate about whether it was murder or suicide, but, you know, a lot of the community thinks it was murder and thinks there was some conspiracy. And I had a woman come up to me in Home Depot, you have to prove, you have to show who paid who and who paid off. <laughs> oh, my God. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of emotion and passion about this case. So um, Mm -hmm. I tried to, you know, basically, I'm not taking sides. I'm not taking a position. I just laid out everything and did my own investigation. And the interesting thing for me is this is the first time I've actually put myself into my book because I became part of the story. And that's because my husband committed suicide by hanging in 1999. So um, I actually lived with somebody who hung themselves, and I know how he was acting in the days before, and I know what was going on with him. So I'm using that as a lens to look at this case. So, oh, yeah, that uh, I'm speechless. <laughs> it was well. It's been long enough because I have know, I, 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 I've been, read I that part of your bio. Yeah, it was and 1999 I just, that he killed himself. So it's been a long enough time that, and I wrote a short memoir right after I watched this whole trial with Rebecca Zahau. I was finally able to finish this thing that I'd been working on for 19 years because it's a really hard thing to talk about, you know. So I think I'm at mm-hmm. the point where, you know, I was able to, I'm okay to talk about it. Because I couldn't, if you asked me, how did your husband kill himself, you know, some years ago? I would get so upset that someone even asked me that I wouldn't even be able to talk about it, but mm-hmm. I'm at the point now where it's been, you know, over 20 years and, and it really helped me understand this case. So. Right. Yeah. That is something that's, that's difficult. And, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes survivors have the stigma and, you know, all sorts of things to deal with and, and people to deal with the way they look at it and handle it. So it's it's great to see you progressing and dealing with it and getting to a place where you can process right. everything now. Well, the only the only thing that happened to me so far that was not very pleasant was during the Rebecca Zahau case. I was on TV here in San Diego eight times. I was asked to be on this local channel to give a trial analysis because I sat through every day of the trial and I was the only person. The media couldn't be there all the time because they're running around doing all kinds of stuff. And I was the only writer there every day. So um, they had me on. And somebody on WebSleuth, are you familiar with that website? Yes. Yeah, WebSleuth made some really nasty comments about how, how how could I be objective if my husband, you know, committed suicide and I just was horrified. They were so mean. I was just like, Are you kidding mm-hmm. me? Are you like attacking me right now? But that's the only experience I've had with that so far. It may happen again when the book comes out, but frankly, anyone who says that to me is just not a rational person. 
is not a kind person and doesn't understand what I do for a living, which is, you know, I'm an objective I'm an objective reporter, essentially. I'm a right. journalist. I'm not taking sides, and I'm far enough away from my own personal experience that I can look at things very analytically. So, right. I, I'm not. Cool. I'm not real fond of the the websites and the podcasters and the other people who say they're reinvestigating these cases. <laughs> she <laughs> says I that as she's on the armchair. The armchair. No, but you know. I'm I'm reporting <laughs> I'm reporting the progress of the case, I'm reporting the facts of the case, I'm reporting what was developed at the trial. I'm reporting what I know, I just thought was developed in the in the appellate process <laughs> and the post conviction. I'm not investigating. Right. And I am. I am actually investigating, but I take mm-hmm. the investigative reports and I listen to all the the sheriff's department, crime scene, crime lab autopsy, photos, reports, uh, investigative reports. I listen to the outside experts. I interview my own people. I interviewed Jonah Shackney eight times. He never talked to anybody else except for 2020 very briefly in a limited mm-hmm. scope. So, my, you know, I'm, I always come at it from every side. I'm not take, that's what I'm saying. I don't have any agenda here. I don't have a pony in this dog or a pony or any other animal in this race. Right. I, I just want to find out the truth. And I approach every book that way, honestly. So. Right. And I appreciate the fact that none of your books advocate either way. Right, and I do that on you purpose. Because just... people are always saying, what's your opinion? What do you think happened? Is this person guilty? And I'm like, you know what, I'm not going to answer that because it mm-hmm. doesn't help anything. And there are some authors who do that, but I'm not one of them, at least not so far. I, and, I, and this one, the Howe case in particular, I, that's a no-win situation. I right. mean, even if I did have an opinion, I, as I say in my author's note, I still don't know what happened. I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm not even there. So I can tell you everything that I know to help you think, you know, figure out what you think happened, but nobody knows. That's why it's still, you know, it's still being debated. Right. That's the way it is. Because that was a, a civil wrongful death. Yeah, and and Verdict. they're still try the family is still trying to get the criminal case reopened, um, or at least get the mm-hmm. the um, death certificate changed to undetermined, or or if they can, the homicide. So they're still mm-hmm. they're still fighting in court about this. Right. But anyway, that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast. That is, and uh, at some point we will definitely love to talk to you about the finished product once Dead Reckoning comes out and you've had your whirlwind of <laughs> Dead Reckoning interviews. Is out. Death on Ocean Boulevard, yes. Death yes. on Ocean Boulevard, I apologize. Yes, yes. <laughs> April 27th, it's available for pre-order now. Okay, so. great. Right. I'm well, going to anyway, definitely I... be on Kindle tonight. Yes. Cool, honest, awesome, awesome, awesome. So I know you wanted to move on and do your show, so... Thank you so much for um, having me on. It was fun. And thank you. Now you can tell everybody time. all of their details that they want to know, dig, digging down deeper into all of these characters in the story. Correct. And we will talk to you in uh, the beginning of our fourth season. Our first episode will be uh, Tom and Jackie Hawks. 
Skylar DeLeon, Jennifer DeLeon, um, the case that was the subject of Dead Reckoning, another one of your excellent books. Thank you so much. Among the 14 (laughs) that you've written. (laughs) All right, cool. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, I can't wait to talk to you again. All right, cool. Me too. All right, bye-bye. Have a good night. You too. Bye bye. Bye. Wow. Okay. That was that that was pretty awesome. I, I mean, I'm just saying that was the first New York Times bestseller I ever got to uh, got to hear. I know. So I mean, I'm just saying, and little feather in the cap, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I she is she is an excellent guest. Absolutely, she was, and she was uh, amazing. So um, I'm so glad that I was able to reach out to her and and have her come on because it was a lot of backstory and and she was there you know boots on the ground uh, during the trials and in you know during the tail end of the investigation as well. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, we have uh, we have a little bit of time. <laughs> Yeah, about an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, So we'll go we'll go back a little bit and talk about uh, Bill McLaughlin and Nanette Packard, Nanette Johnston Packard McNeil, and uh, Andrew Eric Andrew Napofsky. And did you were you able to find anything about Napofsky? I do have the Wikipedia article up. Looks like he played his college ball in, at UConn. Seems like there's a there's a connection here. We had a UConn case earlier in the earlier in the season with uh, Aaron uh, Aaron Hernandez, but uh, he's actually a pretty old school football player. Uh, he was uh, he started his career in New England and finished up in Barcelona in '97. So had a nice little uh, had a nice little career. Although, didn't he have some, um, I seem to recall reading somewhere that his college career, he quit because a coach wouldn't play him after an injury? Um, However, midway through his third year, he quit the football team over a disagreement with his coach, Tom Jackson. Um, And actually, that that actually is what, uh, what caused him to go undrafted. Uh huh. Yeah. So yeah. So Eric Naposki probably has been cutting his nose off despite his face for his entire life. Exactly. (laughs) So uh, let's go back and talk about Bill McLaughlin a little bit. Uh, He was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. He was from a very uh, a, a family of very modest means. Uh-huh. And his parents were actually known to be exceptionally frugal, which uh, he was born in 1939, so his parents had, had been through the Depression. And yeah, very, I'm pretty sure everybody time. was a little bit frugal then. We're coming out of the Depression. And so those, those habits are hard to break. Uh, one of his cousins talks about how he 
he uh, aspired to be a millionaire by the time he was 30, uh, which wasn't unusual for that age, that generation, uh, by any means. When he finished high Shit, school, he joined the U.S. Marine Corps. For today's generation, Lisa. <laughs> I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. Oh, wait, too late. Except... <laughs> I think, to the generation now wants it to fall in their lap rather than working for it. This is true. This is true. Uh, I mean, I, I'm just saying, if it could just happen right now, I'd and be some happy. of my generation is that way as well. Uh, <laughs> he joined He joined the U.S. Marine Corps, which brought him to California. Um, I don't know if you were aware of this, but the it's funny. The U.S. Marine Corps, where you go to boot camp, Depends on which side of the Mississippi River you're on. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, up. technically, for females, they all, I believe, go to South Carolina. So for Paris Island, yeah. No matter what. Yeah. So uh, I I had a friend whose whose son joined the Marines in um, in the recruiting office in Memphis. And was very disappointed that he was going to Paris Island. His friend that joined at the recruiters in Arkansas was going out to California. Yep. (laughs) And so uh, Bill settled in California when he left the Marine Corps. He went to college at Loyola Marymount, or what became Loyola Marymount, and he put himself through college. Um, he was in the Marines during peacetime, so there was no GI Bill to put him through uh, school, and he worked and went to school. Uh, he married in the 1960s, I think 1964, and had three children, daughters Jenny and Kim and son Kevin. And sometime during the 1970s, as Caitlin uh, referred to, Bill invented a medical device that separates plasma from blood. And it's still used today. It, uh, I think one of the main, uh, main applications is in dialysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the patent, uh, was very successful. Made a lot of money off the with the patent. Uh, became very successful. He had a, a degree in biology, I believe, and um, became an entrepreneur. Sometime in the late '80s or early '90s, his wife of 24, 25 years at that point left him and that threw him for a loop mm-hmm. and then we go to Nanette Johnston um, I, I don't really know that much about her early life um, as Caitlin said she's you know her father was an immigrant from India South Asian um, she had I guess she had issues she didn't like who she was. 
And I think that pretty much sums it up. She never liked who she was and wanted to be someone else. Um, mm-hmm. She had a son and a daughter during her first or second marriage. And when she left that husband, she placed a singles ad, which Caitlin referred to, of uh, basically looking only for rich men over 30 or 35 to apply and basically saying, I'll take care of you if you'll take care of me. Right. And uh, then we talked about Naposky. He was from New York. He went to many, he went to a few different high schools as well. And then, hmm. uh, Played high, you know, played high school, and like you said, I mean, he was a somewhat talented linebacker, somewhat talented on special teams, but uh, impulsive. Could yeah, couldn't get out of his own way. Yeah. So uh, in around 1991, Bill's son Kevin was struck by a drunk driver while Kevin was riding a skateboard in uh, the Newport Beach area in California. Kevin sustained severe head injuries, which left him with some mobility problems and some speech problems. Okay. And a long recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill and Nanette met and began a relationship um, Caitlin says through the ad, but some sources that I had independently um, weren't even really sure exactly how they did me, whether it was the ad or or whether it was some other encounter. Um, They were engaged, and Johnston began claiming Bill's accomplishments as her own. She claimed to be his business partner. Uh, she claimed to write business plans for him. Okay. She claimed to help him invest his money or their money. Hmm. And I okay. think for some people, she even even said, you know, she said she had a master's and a doctorate, and she so graduated youngest. She had to be the ride. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And um, she did gain Bill's trust because in his estate planning, he took out a million-dollar life insurance policy with Nanette as a beneficiary. He made her a trustee of his estate. He made a specific bequest to her of $150,000 in his will. And he also uh, bequeathed her a vehicle and use of a beach house in Newport Beach or in that area uh, rent-free for one year if something should happen to him. Johnston also was carrying on a relationship with Eric Naposky, whom she'd met at the gym and who she worked out with at the gym and with whom people at the gym believed she was having an exclusive relationship. Um, she somehow managed to travel with Naposky to New York to meet his family. 
she brought him to meet her family. Um, but I think that this was all just part of the con for Nanette. He was going to serve a purpose. Right. But in order for him to serve that purpose, he had to be invested. Or, hmm. as I said, maybe she just has a magical hoo-ha. <laughs> maybe. Something. Or, you know, she does something that most women say I ain't doing. Who knows? Um, but she does have a way of, of really charming, very quickly charming men into giving up things for her. So the night of December 15th, 1994, um, Bill had been in Las Vegas. He flew his private plane back to land at uh, John Wayne Airport in, in Orange County. When he got to the house, he found a note from Nanette that she was at a soccer game with her son and her daughter. Her ex-husband was there, the, the children's father. And also there with her was Eric Naposky. Um, at about nine eleven in the that night, sometime after nine, Kevin is upstairs in his room listening to music, and he hears gunshots. He gets downstairs. About nine eleven, he places a call to nine one one. If you've ever watched uh, Forty Eight Hours coverage on the case they play Kevin's 911 call it is heartbreaking because Kevin had issues with speech from his head injury and he was in a an emotionally charged situation and that tends to exacerbate difficulties with speech so he was trying to talk to a 911 operator who could not understand him. And you can hear his frustration. They play the 911 calls. It's heartbreaking. Uh, Police arrive within a few minutes, and they find Bill has died on the kitchen floor. They also note from witness statements that the gunshots were in a three-burst double-tap pattern. Two shots, pause, two shots, pause, two shots. And Bill was struck all six times in the uh, chest, upper abdomen. They also find a key in the door. I think it was the front door. And another key that fit the pedestrian gate leading into the gated community on the, on the mat outside the door. Um, this is evidence that Eric Naposky ain't that bright because he left them behind when he carried out the murder. And I know it seems like I'm jumping to a big old conclusion there, but <laughs> what are you going to do? Right. Um, so as part of their investigation, uh, they start to follow Johnston and Naposky and very quickly see that there's a relationship between Johnston and Naposky, even though Johnston was the live-in fiancé of Bill McLaughlin. Uh, 
at the time Bill McLaughlin died. And um, so they questioned Johnson and Naposky, and neither of them is forthcoming with facts. Johnston, for example, does not say anything about Eric Naposky being at the soccer game, which is her alibi. Um, although she also doesn't tell the, the police that the, the soccer game went into several overtimes and after the game was over, but before the trophies were handed out, Naposky Johnston had to book it and leave the soccer mm-hmm. field. Uh, and they were observed running to, to Johnston's car. Um, Naposky went beyond not forthcoming, and he just flat out lied. He claimed... Johnston was just a friend until he got caught and then he he like you know was a little passive aggressive because he was kind of pissed when he found out that Johnston was engaged to Bill McLaughlin because he apparently very naively believed that McLaughlin was just a business partner Uh, he also lied about guns It, it initially denying having weapons at all and then saying, oh, well, I had a, I had a gun, I had a 380 that I gave to my dad, and I had a 9mm that I loaned to a buddy of mine named Jimenez. Well, they tracked Jimenez down, and Jimenez was like, uh, yeah, he loaned me the, nine, the 380, and I kept it because he didn't pay me. And mm-hmm. I sold it. Uh, but it was a 380. It wasn't a nine millimeter. And then he claimed the nine millimeter was stolen from his truck. And maybe that's the one that he gave to his dad. And Eric couldn't stop talking. And when one story didn't work, he tried to come up with a new one. Um, another aspect of the initial stages of the investigation was that um, there were two witnesses who anonymously provided information but did not want to go on record at that time probably due to concern as to what Eric Naposky might do to them. Uh, the the first was Suzanne Kogar, who uh, Caitlin and I referred to. She was a neighbor of Naposky's and he'd made some somewhat incriminating statements to her. Um, he talked about Nanette telling him that Bill McLaughlin was making unwanted sexual advances and that he was angry at McLaughlin. He wanted to kill him. He wanted to blow up his plane. Um, and then after Bill was murdered, he said something about, oh, you heard he was murdered. Um, and maybe I did it, maybe I didn't. And I had a key made to his house or something along those lines. Uh, there was another gentleman by the name of Cottrell. He worked at a, a, a health club, a gym where uh, Naposky and Johnston worked out. And uh, he had information about their relationship, that they were going to get married, and that they were going to, or Nanette was going to invest in a software program that he was developing 
but it was going to have to be after the springtime, which would be probably be when she was expecting Bill McLaughlin's estate to have a lot of money that she would be able to pay him. Um, and right before Bill was murdered, he had gone to mediation with the dispute with his former business partner, and the business partner had been ordered to pay him $9 million. I think mm-hmm. Caitlin alluded to that earlier as well. Um, yeah, they I, their dispute, um, I think they were both on the patent together, and so they when they company – there was a dispute as to who the patent really belonged to. Um, and it was, it, it it did get heated and it did go on for a long time, but uh, Bill was eventually victorious and the former business, business partner who was a, a probably older than Bill at the time uh, in his, you know, 60s, at the time Bill was murdered, was in Santa Barbara when Bill was killed. So, um, as Caitlin said, the police didn't have, they had circumstantial information or circumstantial evidence. Uh, the double tap pattern is something that Naposky was trained in. Uh, the keys, the key in the door lock, they didn't know where that was made. The key on the ground, Nanette was missing her gate key. But they couldn't say the key on the ground belonged to Nanette, and they couldn't say that the the key in the door was made by Eric Naposky. Um, so they split the cases, and they did have quite extensive theft by Johnston prior to Bill's murder from a household account that he gave her signing rights to, as well as forgeries on other of Bill's accounts. And I think they the estimate was about half a million dollars stolen mm-hmm. from Bill McLaughlin by Nanette Johnston prior to Bill's death, including a $250,000 check that Nanette forged dated the day before Bill was murdered and deposited by her in an account for an LLC that she created two days after Bill died. And really, she should have never deposited the, the check in that account after Bill died. She should have torn it up and thrown it away. But she was greedy. And so, um, and in going over, in going over the books and, and I think trying to get everything together for the estate, they discovered that she started off small, you know, taking small sums from the household account and recording them as like, you know, writing herself a check for $5,000, but recording it as a check for $1,000 to a credit card company. You know, not even necessarily, she wasn't even necessarily that smart about it. 
Um, maybe at first she was smart, and then she just got, as she didn't get caught, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, she also forged mm-hmm. Bill's signature on the title of a vehicle. Right. Which was really dumb. <laughs> so, especially when his kids are your age and his kids have always felt that you were only with him for his money. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't prove, you've just proved them right. So she was arrested for theft and forgery. Um, I think she, I, I think I referred to it as embezzlement in one of the, one of the intros, but um it was theft and forgery. She entered a guilty plea, and she was sentenced to a year, I believe, and served only a few months. But she did have a felony record. Um, and I think that that, as Caitlin alluded to, I think that caused an issue with the Orange County DA when they wanted to, to file the murder charges. Because now they've mm-hmm. just gotten a guilty plea on the forgery and, and theft. Um, it They couldn't use it now to help them prove murder by, beyond a reasonable doubt. It may also simply have been that what they had so circumstantial, such a circumstantial case initially, that they weren't sure they could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's a a chance had they filed charges, they might have been able to prove it against Nanette, but then got an acquittal with Naposky. Right. So, you know, the the DA has to wait. And that's probably one of the reasons the Orange County DA refused the case as it was presented to them in the 1990s because they could not prove for both beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. So life went on for Johnston and Aposky. They both went on. Um, Johnston married two more men and had more children. Uh, Naposky married and had children and moved to, I think it was Connecticut. In 2007, uh, the DA assigned Matt Murphy who uh, is a an Orange County district attorney that we will hear about with the Hawks case. And he prosecuted Rodney Alcala, who we were going to talk about last week, but we've decided to wait until Alcala's direct appeal concludes, um, just as an aside there. Um, and the... Larry Montgomery, the DA investigator, basically started from scratch. He went through every lead. He went through every witness. He talked to everybody that he could talk to. And that led him to Suzanne Kogar, who had the somewhat incriminating statements. While Naposky never made a direct admission, he had his coy little, well, maybe I did, or maybe I didn't, um, but she also, he had made a statement to her about having a key made. And he identified the shop that it was made at a hardware store in Tustin, where his apartment was at the time. 
So that, uh, with that, Montgomery was able to track down the key maker. And while he no longer owned the machine to corroborate uh, his recollection, he recalled making the key. And he recalled Eric Napofsky because six foot something, 200 plus, uh, 240 plus pounds with a bad toupee, you're not going to forget him. Mm-hmm. And then Cottrell, the, the gym, fellow gym member or gym employee, uh, Montgomery talked to him and he uh, repeated statements Johnson made about an intent to marry Napofsky. Um He talked about the relationship between Johnson and Napofsky, how they'd hold hands, kiss, come in the gym together, work out together. And then he talked about Nanette's intent to invest in his software program. Um, Another piece that came together um, was there was in the original investigation, they found a notebook with Bill McLaughlin's license plate number on it. Uh, And one of the witnesses, I think, gave a little bit more context to Eric Naposky having Bill McLaughlin's license plate number. So the first... Um, Naposki and Johnston were both arrested in May 2009. Johnston was a housewife in Ladera Ranch, which is a Shishi area in Orange County. Um, and Naposki was in Connecticut. Uh, they were both arrested. Naposki was extradited to California, and they awaited trial in uh, Orange County Jail because I don't think either one of them could make bail with first degree murder special circumstance uh, it was probably quite hefty and mm-hmm. the Posky went on trial first and the prosecution had basically the keys the fact that Naposky had the key made in Tustin they had the key maker they had Naposky's statements to Cottrell, Kogar, uh, and then they had the gun and ballistics where initially uh, the was it was a nine millimeter. In twenty ten a ballistic expert was able to actually narrow it down to a Beretta ninety two F or 92F type 9mm. And that's the type of 9mm that Eric Naposky had, but didn't have. And it's the type of 9mm that Eric Naposky lied about. And he's still lying. He said in an interview that that gun was Nanette's gun. It was never his gun. It was always her gun. And then in another one, he said it was his gun and it disappeared 
because the pretend hitman was trying to frame him. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Eric just likes to talk. The defense was pretty much uh, Eric Naposky claimed he could not have commit, committed the murder because on the night of Bill McLaughlin's murder, after they left the soccer game, at some point after Nanette dropped him off or while he was in the car on the way to his apartment in Tustin to change clothes and go to work at a club that was 400-something feet from Bill McLaughlin's house, he got a page from his boss at the club, who wasn't really his boss, um, at and at 8.52 p.m., he stopped at a Denny's to return that call at a payphone. Now, he was supposed to be at work, as I understood it, at 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get a page at 8.50 and you're on the highway on your way to work and you've got to be there for 9 is your ass going to stop and return a phone call from a payphone at a restaurant? I'm going to go with no. I mean, I haven't even pulled in to return a cell phone call when I'm on my way and I'm already running late. True. So... Uh, and Eric Naposky claimed that that absolutely was impossible for him to have gotten from that restaurant to Bill McLaughlin's house in time to commit the murder. Um, when he was initially interviewed by police, he said nothing about this phone call. But he realized that he, when he talked to the police initially, the timeline he gave them actually left him with zero alibi for that 9 to 9-11 window for Bill McLaughlin's murder. So he had to come up with something, and I think that's where the 852 phone call came in. And, you know, the story about the page is is kind of amorphous. Um Sometimes it sounds like the page was when he was on his way, when Danette was bringing him back to his apartment so he could change to go to work. Well, if you got the page while you were on your way to the apartment, why not call from the apartment? Duh. Um, Why change clothes and get in your truck and then start going toward Newport Beach and say, ooh, wait. I need to stop and return this page. So um, kind of personally, I think the 852 phone call was just another story Eric Naposky wanted to tell to try and make it look like he didn't do this. Um, The in Naposky's trial, the judge actually allowed a former attorney and former defense investigator to testify that they had seen a credit card statement or a calling card statement that corroborated this 852 phone call. 
the court also allowed Naposky to admit other hearsay evidence by by the time Naposky was tried, Kevin McLaughlin had died in a surfing accident in Hawaii in 1999. But the judge actually allowed an investigator's hearsay statements from Kevin to be admitted at Naposky's trial during the defense case. Um, they allowed hearsay statements from a neighbor of Bill's in Naposky's trial because that neighbor was deceased by the time of the the trial. So, you know, the judge actually let Naposky put on evidence that otherwise would not have been admissible. Um, Mm -hmm. So he did give, he gave Naposky some leeway in presenting his, his defense. Uh, the jury, he did not testify. And this is also, again, Naposky was putting on an alibi defense without testifying. Which is kind of unusual. Because normally, if you want to put on an alibi defense, you have to be the one to testify. Um unless you have other people that are, you know, that are going to testify that I was with him in at this place and that place. So, um the jury it, because it was a a purely circumstantial case. Some strong circumstances, but still entirely circumstantial. It took the jury a little while. Uh but they they did come back with a guilty verdict of first-degree murder with special circumstance of financial gain. Now, there was no sentencing at that point. The sentencing was set for a point in the future. Then um, in 2012, Johnston went to trial, and most of the evidence against Johnston was the same evidence against Naposky, with the exception that um, her Johnston's ex-husband, the the parent of the father of the son who played in the soccer game in 1994, uh, testified that after Bill's murder, Nanette called him and said, hey, when you talk to the police, don't mention Eric Naposky being at the soccer game. Mhm. So that's kind of like consciousness of guilt. You're trying to hide something from police. Um she assured her husband that he had nothing to do with Bill's murder. But um you know that was not so. So her defense was basically look, Apofsky was just jealous and he killed Bill all on his own and I had nothing to do with it. Uh, her attorney actually argued, you know, yeah, she's a thief. Yeah, she's a slut. You can call her whatever you want, but she's not a killer. 
And then um, finally, his argument was Toposky was basically a loser, and Jan- and Johnston never would have been with him. Whatever their relationship was, it wasn't going to be long term in her mind, uh, which probably really helped the jury because that's like that makes it even worse, and I think it makes her even worse because he was just a means to an end. She wanted Bill McLaughlin's money, um, and uh, she was going to get it by any means that she could. So her jury convicted her of first-degree murder with special circumstance of financial gain. Um, That would have been, they would have been each been death eligible under California law. But the district attorney elected not to pursue the death penalty. So they were both facing life in prison without possibility of parole. So their sentencing was supposed to be a joint sentencing. But the day of the sentencing, uh, Eric Naposky refused to enter the courtroom. Now, his attorneys were going to file a motion for new trial and, you know, try and get him a new trial. But it's funny, there was a a press conference and Matt Murphy said something that was hilarious. She said, you know, there's Eric, he says, there's Eric Naposky throwing down his binky and refusing to enter the courtroom because he's a coward. Because he didn't want to face Bill McLaughlin's daughters. Um, The sentencing did go on for Johnston. And she was sentenced to life without parole. And uh, then Naposky's motion for new trial was denied. And a new sentencing hearing was scheduled. And this one went forward. During sentencing, and this is almost as audacious as Nanette Johnson filing a palimony claim after she's been arrested for theft and forgery against Bill McLaughlin's estate. Um, But uh, while Bill's daughter, Kim, was giving her victim impact statement, Eric Naposky was talking back to her, saying that's not true. That's not what happened. At one point, he said something along the lines of, your father knew. And if I had been Kim, it would have been on. I would have been, I would have been on my way across the table to kick some Eric Naposky out, no matter how big he is. <laughs> I would have been a little wildcat. Um you know, dynamite comes in small packages for a reason. But Kim, bless her, she didn't she didn't do anything. And she she had the last word. Uh hopefully because his attorney hit him in the head. Um and he ended up with life without parole as well. So uh 
that brings us to their direct appeals, which pretty much um, their major complaint was the delay in bringing charges denied them both of due process. Uh, Johnston's uh, direct appeal, which was decided first, she uh, alleged ineffective assistance of her counsel because counsel failed to raise a demurrer to the charges pursuant to a case called Kellett versus Superior Court. And that basically says if you've been convicted of a crime and the facts of that crime kind of dovetail with another crime, then you can't be convicted of the other crime. You can't be tried. And that's, and I think that is what the DA was thinking about whenever they, um, you know, when Caitlin said they, they split the case, they split the murder and the embezzlement. And I think the DA was thinking of that as well. There was a chance if they convicted her of the forgery and theft, that's her motive. They're not going to be able to. They're not going to be able to pursue the murder charges. Now, luckily, the way the facts came out, the theft and forgeries weren't intertwined with any of the actions related to the murder or the or the facts related to the murder. They happen in different places at different times. Um, some of the some of the events occurred after Bill was murdered. So, um, what her public defenders raised the issue initially, and the judge denied it. And she was alleging when she had retained counsel initially, rather. And that counsel raised it. The judge denied it. Then apparently her husband decided he wasn't going to pay for her attorneys anymore. Guessing. I don't have this on any authority. But that would be my guess. And so she had to have a public defender appointed. And she's alleging the public defender was ineffective for not raising it again and pursuing it again after he was appointed. The judge, the court uh, basically found, the appellate court found that, you know, the, the attorney was not ineffective for not taking action that would have been um, meritless or not raising a claim that had no merit because it didn't. Um Nothing changed between the time her initial counsel brought it forward and the time her public defender took over. Then, again, she claimed kind of amorphously that the delay in bringing charges, because there was like a 15-year delay, um, denied her due process because witnesses' memories failed, witnesses were lost, evidence was lost. But the appellate court, again, found that most of her complaints were speculative. And 
she hadn't proven that the outcome of her trial would have been different had this information or evidence been available. So they denied relief on that. And then she also alleged an evidentiary error in the admission of some of Naposky's statements to Coger. But because Naposky was being tried separately, the admission of the statements was not um, was not an error, and again, she did not prevail. So her conviction and sentence were affirmed on direct appeal and became final. Naposky's direct appeal was basically solely on the due process uh, complaint regarding delay in bringing charges. He claimed phone records were lost. He claimed witness testimony was lost. He claimed there was an inability to reproduce driving conditions in 1994. And then he complained about the admission of hearsay evidence that his his attorney was allowed to admit. Um, and I think he is pursuing his appeal. Uh, he's definitely pursuing post-conviction pro se. So um, take that for what you will. Again, the the Fourth Circuit uh, or the Court of Appeal, I don't know what appellate division it was, found that, again, the delay in bringing charges was not done by the district attorney deliberately and it wasn't done to gain some tactical advantage over the accused. It was the result of an investigatory process. Uh, in 1994, 1995, they did not have Kogar, who didn't want to come forward and was afraid to come forward, and they didn't have Cottrell, who, while he was willing to provide information anonymously, did not leave his name. And so they didn't have those witnesses or the statements from the Posky and Johnston that those witnesses knew about in 1994, 1995. Um, so then the claim about loss of phone records um, the court actually said something interesting in that basically if anybody's to blame for the loss of the phone records, it's Naposky or counsel he retained during that time period because they did not provide these phone records to the Newport Beach Police Department. Naposky told them about this alleged page and alleged call, but he didn't provide them with those records. And a common misconception for a lot of people is that when you tell the police about your alibi, they are under have a duty to go out and corroborate your alibi for you. And that's not so. While they will look at what information you provide them, if you have documents that corroborate your alibi, you give them to the police. They'll look into them. They'll they'll look at the provenance of those documents and ensure that those documents are legitimate. And then they'll say you have an alibi and, and you go off the suspect list. Or they'll find out the, the documents are bullshit and they'll keep you on that list. 
Uh, but police don't aren't under an obligation to investigate a suspect's alibi. If you have an alibi, you need to prove it. So, uh, again, you know, if they had the phone records, they should have given them to the Newport Beach Police Department. And then if those were lost, they could complain. But you can't complain that something's lost that you never gave the cops. Uh, And, again, at the trial, Naposky was able to introduce hearsay testimony that would not have been admissible in order to give him a little bit of leeway in trying to prove his alibi. So he was able to introduce testimony from investigator and attorney who both claimed that they saw this credit card statement or this credit calling card statement or whatever. Um, The loss of witness testimony was basically the supervisor who wasn't really Naposky's supervisor Um, could no longer remember the call by the time of Naposky's trial. Again, Naposky was allowed through an investigator to introduce an earlier statement of the guy who said he was calling to tell Naposky to leave early for work because there was some kind of boat parade and traffic was heavy. But it turns out that the boat parade was two days after McLaughlin's murder. Um, And that was another complaint is that, you know, they put on this evidence and then the district attorney was allowed to cross-examine the witness and or put on evidence that refuted that witness. You know, it's like, hun, that is the... You know, that's the whole theater of court. Put your stuff on, and if the district attorney has somebody that can prove that's not true, they have every right to put on that evidence. Um, so it, long and short is that the uh, appellate court again found that the delay – Naposky hadn't proved that the delay caused any actual harm and that the outcome of his case would have been any different had this speculative evidence been available. Um, So again, with both Johnson and Naposky, there's an element of uh, burden of proof on direct appeal. If you're going to say something hurt your case, you have to be able to show the court how it hurt your case. And that it really did hurt your case. You can't just say, it hurt my case because I didn't have it. Which is basically what they were saying. So after his appeal was denied, and it may have been while his appeal was was still being decided, uh, Eric Naposky decided to try to con the media and the DA. He claimed that he had known all along who really killed Bill McLaughlin. That it was a a producer friend of his who Johnson hired. And he had this producer friend of his stealing the gun out of his truck and saying 
initially saying, well, why would I tell anybody? It didn't do me any good. It's like, dumbass. (laughs) If you're suspect number one and you know who really killed the guy, it is in your best interest to say, look, I didn't do it, but it was this guy. Go talk to him. And look at her phone bill and look at this and look at her bank records and you'll see this and you'll see that because Nanette hired him. Um, But he didn't do that. And then he comes forward later and wants to try and do it and claims that he knew it, but he couldn't prove it. But then during Johnston's trial, he got all this discovery that proved it. Well, I think as it turned out, it's so bogus that neither the media nor the DA will name the person. And my money is on a person who perhaps appeared in an early news magazine program um, supporting his good buddy, Eric Naposky, who no longer appears on those programs. And no longer wants to talk about Eric Nabowski. Because in one of the early, in the early, the first 48 hours program, there's a guy, uh, Eric Nabowski did a little acting before his arrest and incarceration. And um, he claims that the person Minette hired was a, a producer friend of his. And this guy was a producer. Um, and, you know, he wasn't on the American Greed episode and he wasn't on the follow-up 48 Hours episode and I think there was a Dateline episode and I don't think he was on that one. So, but like I said, the media and the DA and the Newport Beach police won't even name the guy. That's how basically bogus Naposky's story is. <laughs> so it's so bad that they won't even name the dude. No, they won't release his name. That's and I funny. bet you Caitlin knows, but she probably wouldn't have wouldn't have said his name either. So, uh and then um state and federal post conviction pretty much the same. They made the exact same claims. Um, but in, st- in state and federal post-conviction, you, you have to prove a, a constitutional violation mm-hmm. based on U.S. Supreme Court holding. And neither, neither of them have that, so they, they were unsuccessful in state post-conviction and uh, unsuccessful in federal post-conviction. Their, their claims were... Their federal claims were dismissed by the magistrate without a hearing. And I don't have the the state opinions um, because that California doesn't do a lot of reporting on post-conviction. I wish they did, but they don't. So that is pretty much uh, the long and the short of uh, Nanette Johnston. Packard, McNeil, and Eric Andrew Naposky. 
Excuse my language, but that's fucking convoluted. It is a little bit. And, you know, really uh, can't say this enough. Read I'll Take Care of You, Caitlin Rother's book. It's available on Kindle because I've downloaded it. Um, it is an excellent book. Caitlin is an a, a a phenomenal true crime writer. Uh, one of these days, I might even pick her brain uh, to see about writing about Rodney Reed. For me, because I, you know, how did she do it? Of course, she had the Pulitzer Prize nomination and investigative reporting career that I didn't have, but, you know, (laughs) we'll see. But uh, I might see if she has any tips or pointers for me. Right. For that and a a Westminster Three book. That would be cool. You know, I was yeah. in there thinking about some of the some of the cases because she was talking about women and stuff like that. I was thinking about some of the other cool cases that it'd be cool to see her do, just because you're, she's right. There are so few uh, actual female killers out there. Uh, I was thinking about uh, Riggs, uh, Christina Riggs, because I actually watched something on her the other day as well. Um, which I mean, I know we've covered Christina Riggs on here before as yeah. well. She yeah. was uh, something else. You know, I would, um, I will propose that to her on Facebook. Maybe she could do like a, at some point, uh, an, another project could be maybe a compilation, not as in-depth as I'll Take Care of You or Death on Ocean Boulevard or Dead Reckoning, but more a compilation to look at Christina Riggs, uh, Dahlia DiPolito. I mean, Dahlia DiPolito sounds a lot like Nanette Johnston as far as her taking advantage of men and and my suspicions about magical hoo-hahs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I know. Whenever we whenever we have a case with a woman, it's going to be like a magical ooh ah. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I just I watch these news magazine programs about the case, and I think for me, what I find about Nanette is her eyes are just dead. Yeah. I mean, they're just, look at those pictures that I posted of her. Of course, I, I go for the um, less attractive mugshot, in court, face, mean mug <laughs> type pictures of, of the uh, accused or convicted defendants. But um, her eyes, when you look at all the pictures, even the glamour, the glamorous pictures of her, her eyes are absolutely freaking dead. There is no sparkle. There's no life. It's just. Vacant. You know, 
you ain't lying. I'm looking at this picture of her on this uh, Murderpedia, and uh, yeah, she uh, she certainly has. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, even the glamour shot where she has the long blonde hair and the leather top and arching her back so her boobies look big, <laughs> or maybe that's after the breast implants. <laughs> oh my God, I love you, Lisa. <laughs> we have we have magical new hogs and arch in our back, so our boobies look big. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I'm 56. I'm I'm not gonna mince words. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to pops in my head. It's gonna come out my mouth. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah. So that was that is an interesting case, and. Um, like I said, our first episode of season four will be Caitlin Rother. Um, we are going to, I'm going to coordinate with her ahead of time and send her, you know, the outline ahead of time. And because her books and I can't recommend her books enough. Mm-hmm. I'll take care of you covers this case, Dead Reckoning covers the one we're going to talk about in uh, beginning of, I think it's going to be the beginning of March is our first episode of season four. Yeah, um, it should be something like that. She uh, she wrote the memoir, and actually I will go in in the comments uh, tomorrow evening for this episode, and I'll post a link to Caitlin's uh, website with all of her books listed and um, so that listeners can can follow up and look at all the books and uh, especially the the memoir that she wrote uh, dealing with her husband's death in 1999 um, because that one that's like the next one on my Kindle wish list that I'm going to get when I make some more payments to Amazon <laughs> mm-hmm. and can afford to buy uh, buy books again from Amazon. Right. So, but yeah, I think that covers our that covers the case. Well, let's go while we're off, flawed human beings. And I'm not saying Bill McLaughlin was perfect. I think Nanette Packard and and Eric Naposky were far more villainous than he ever was. Right. So, that is it. So, you, you have any final thoughts? Not really. <laughs> We've been through a hell of a lot tonight. Yes, we have. All right, well, let's go ahead and, and wrap it up then. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us on Tuesday, January 19th, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 29.
State of Maryland versus James Allen Kobicki. Kobicki, a former Baltimore City police officer, was convicted of the murder of his 22-year-old former girlfriend and mother of his son, Gina Nielsen, in Gunpowder State Park near Baltimore, Maryland. We'll talk about the murder, Kobicki's motive, and the twists and turns in the case since his initial conviction in 1993. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.